thought the event was amazing. I thought that I knew a lot about real estate, but coming to your seminar, I realized there's a lot of things that I don't know. And uh, one thing that you did besides teach me a lot about real estate is you inspired me to look beyond where I live and to, you know, kind of shrink down the world and, and make it smaller so that I can invest in places that are further away and get better returns. So I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm excited to be here this weekend. And again, for me and from all the people I heard there, thanks for doing these events because uh, they're great. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1324, 1324. Thanks for joining me today. It is a rainy Wednesday in Florida, and uh, well, it was beautiful this morning, but boy, the rain just comes down. There's no water shortage in Florida, let me tell you that. <laughs> it's uh, This is one wet place with life everywhere. Life is everywhere. So the quote for the day comes from Albert Einstein. I saw this one yesterday, and I liked it, thought I'd share it with you, and uh you know, if you ever watch that Simon Sinek video uh, about uh, why, you know, I think a lot about my why, you know, 14 years ago, well, you know, about 14 years ago, I guess it was, I could have retired, stopped working, I'd be uh, relaxing somewhere with no sense of purpose in life. But I decided I had a why, and my why was to save the world from the scam artist and the pooled money investments and Wall Street and so forth, and really engage in consumer advocacy. That's what I love, helping the underdog. And so this quote reminded me of that, and I thought I'd share it with you. Einstein said, quote, the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without doing anything, unquote. That was good old Albert Einstein, and he was a pretty smart guy. The world will not be destroyed by those who do evil. And there are definitely evildoers, folks. We all know that. But by those who watch them without doing anything. And hey, that's the basis for uh, like that funny Seinfeld episode about the Good Samaritan Law. You know, the law in some places, I don't know if these are, these are still true, if these laws are still in effect, requires that we be a good Samaritan. If we see someone getting mugged, right? And we're there and we can aid them and we refuse to do it if we sit there passively. But with white collar crime, there's no rule about that, is there, right? We have a duty, folks, to do things, to be activists, to file complaints, to hold people accountable and not accept this kind of bad behavior out there in the world. So I encourage you, in fact, I deputize all of you 
to do the same, to do the same. And we've helped many of you do that. And many of you have achieved some incredible results with that. So if you need help with anything, our investment counselors are here to help you. We have a whole team dedicated. And you know, I've noticed over the years, as I've hired people and as I've let people go and as people have come and gone from my companies, the people who don't view it as a mission, who don't have a sense of purpose, who don't have a sense of ethics, who aren't there to really do things well and to go to bat for our clients, who just want to make the next dollar, make the next sale, you know, those kind of people, you just got to show them the door. And uh, boy, we've done that. And it's been costly, let me tell you, because the instant gratification mind says, hey, this person's producing, they're making me money, you know, but really, when you play the long game, you look at the big thing, that's the way you got to look at it. And I think that that's the best investment. See, being willing to delay gratification for a long-term bigger picture is really the best life and the best thing. So the National Association of Realtors is having a meeting or they just ended their big conference and something big came out of it. Let me tell you, this is a big deal, big deal, big deal. This is going to change the real estate world. It's going to change the market. And, you know, there are arguments on both sides of this, whether it's good or not. But there's a thing in the business that I've been hearing about for the last 30 plus years in my career in the real estate business. And it's known as the pocket listing. The pocket listing. What is a pocket listing? Well, you know, there are listings on houses, listings on commercial properties, but there aren't many pockets listed for sale. (laughs) Well, pocket listing is when someone who is a realtor, and a realtor is actually a trade name. It means you're a member of the National Association of Realtors. I was a member of the National Association of Realtors for many years. Now I am simply a lowly real estate licensee because I'm no longer a member of NAR, the National Association of Realtors. I have a real estate license, but I'm not a member of their association anymore. But, you know, they do some good things, some bad things. I kind of think this is a good thing that they did. I don't know. There's arguments on both sides. I can see it from both directions. But what they did is they have now banned, they have banned pocket listings. And what does that mean? That means when some realtor out there takes a listing on a property and they keep it in their back pocket, they don't tell anybody about it. They don't put it in the multiple listing service or the MLS. They say, hey, I'm going to keep this one to myself. I'm not going to share it. And this only becomes a big deal in the type of real estate market where inventory is very tight, very constricted, okay? And that, hey, that's the type of market we've been in for many years now, right? Because inventory is tight and there aren't many listings out there and there aren't many properties for sale. So all of these selfish folks, they're greedy, They want to go take a listing, and sometimes they don't even tell the seller. They don't even tell the owner that they're going to keep it in their back pocket and not tell anybody, and they're going to try and sell it themselves and double-end it and earn twice the commission. Well, the National Association of Realtors says, look, if you're a member of our association, which, by the way, is like most 
real estate agents are members, right? Traditional real estate agents. They have over a million members, so they're huge NAR, big deal, big trade organization. They said, look, if you're a member of our association and you're getting all the benefits from our association, then you have a duty of clear cooperation. Those are the words they use, quote, clear cooperation, unquote. That's the policy they passed, and that's what they think should happen. Now, there are about 800, I couldn't believe this myself, there are about 800 multiple listing services in the United States. The policy was going to go into effect January 1st, but they decided to wait until May 1st to make it go into effect. All of these realtors, <laughs> the realtors out there, or the realtors, that's a joke, realtor. Uh, My funny term. See, I'm so funny. Don't you think I'm funny? No, I'm not very funny. Okay. I gave up my comedy career for this. Okay. Anyway, you're probably glad I did. Or at least I'm glad because I'd be starving. Anyway, they said, look, you got to cooperate by May 1st of next year, folks. So there's the deal. That will have significant impact on the market. And we will talk about it on future episodes, what it means to you, the home seller, the home buyer, whoever you are out there. This is kind of meaningful. It's kind of a big deal. All right. Next thing up. Well, I wanted to talk about leveraged buyouts. I'm going to save that till maybe tomorrow or maybe next week because the LBO, the leveraged buyout. Now that, you know, that's something you hear about on Wall Street and the stock market. There's a big one going through. Probably the biggest one in history. What does that have to do with real estate investing? Everything. Because I have long said that what we do as real estate investors is we do LBOs. We do leveraged buyouts. That's pretty much how we buy our properties. I'm going to explain. I'll explain. It's coming up. Don't worry. I won't leave you hanging too long. Either tomorrow or or next week, I'll talk to you in depth because I need a little more time. And we got to get to our guest today. And our guest, by the way, is talking about prosperity in the age of decline kind of a contradictory concepts, right? So we'll get to our guest in a moment. But first, I want to share with you a testimonial I got uh, not too long ago, maybe a week, eh, maybe two weeks ago, from one of our listeners. Now, this listener is kind of a special listener. And at first, I thought she was upset with me. But as I kept listening to the message, I realized she was not upset with me. She was actually leaving a nice compliment. Um, But at first, you know, when someone tells you, when they say something like, we need to talk, or I got to tell you something, you think, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. Well, not in trouble here. You might think this person's kind of biased, but just listen to what she says for a second. And then I want to talk to you about live recordings coming up, live recordings that we have coming up of uh, some of our conferences. I think you'll like this. If you attended, it'll be a recap. If you didn't attend, hey, you get some free stuff. Almost as good as being there. Okay, so here we go with a little quick clip, and then we will get to our live stuff and our guest. Jason, so I have to tell you something, but I need you to forget I am your girlfriend because this is coming from another place. This is not from the person that knows you. This is from just a random person in the world i think your podcast is the most entertaining 
educational, and engaging of all the podcasts I know. I don't know them all, but I've tried many, and I either lose interest or my brain or my mind starts wandering and just can't just follow them. And with your podcast, I just keep listening and I'm learning and I just get entertained. So just wanted you to know that. And trust me, this is not coming from the girlfriend person. This is coming from an objective person that knows podcasts and listens to things and likes to learn. And that's my opinion. Okay, I'm not going to let you hear the rest of it. <laughs> but yes, that's Carmen with her Venezuelan accent. You've heard her on the show many times. Just thought that was cool. And you know what? I think she's right. I think she's on to something. My podcast is the best podcast out there. So keep on listening, folks, and we'll keep on producing them. So what was I talking about about live stuff? Well, we have got some good recordings to share from our recent Profits in Paradise event, and we've got some good recordings of some of our other events. And by popular demand, we're going to be playing some of those vignettes for you. We had some really interesting conversations at a lot of these events and a lot of stuff we don't talk about on the podcast. And over the past years, the past 14 years, you know, we've played some live event stuff, but we just haven't done much of it lately. And you've asked for it, so we're going to do it. You're going to hear some of it. Of course, go to the event because there's so much more than just hearing the content. When you go, there's all the networking, all the fun, all the drinks, the bands. You know, we hire tribute bands and all kinds of stuff. And by the way, we're going to be announcing our spring Meet the Masters conference. It might technically be in the winter toward the end of winter, but that'll be coming up in Southern California soon. So look for an announcement on that. And without further ado, let's get to our guest today and talk about prosperity in the age of decline. It's my pleasure to welcome a returning guest back to the show. That is Brian Bolio. He is CEO at ITR Economics and author of Prosperity in the Age of Decline, How to Lead Your Business and Preserve Your Wealth Through the Coming Business Cycles. Brian, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jason. Thanks for having me back. It's good to have you on. There is a lot going on in the economy. There's a lot going on with uh, the Fed and interest rate discussions. Where shall we start? <laughs> uh, let's start uh, with looking into the future here a little bit. As we, you and I are talking, there's a lot of consternation about the economy is softening up here in the waning months of 2019. And everybody seems to be getting caught up in that, and I think that's a mistake. What's really more important to look at is look out six months, a year beyond this. Uh, you have to be thinking a half business cycle ahead if you're going to get a competitive edge going for yourself. We're not caught up in the weakness because we saw that coming a year ago. What's important now is looking for the leading indicators that are telling us about the next rising trend. They're beginning to form already into uh, reversals. We follow over a dozen leading indicators and three of them already have turned up into statistically significant rising trends. So it's time to look at that next trend and be able to zero in on those opportunities that arise from the next trend rather than worrying about, is the Fed going to lower interest rates uh, another 25 bips? 
that's ancient history by now. And if you aren't positioned for it, you're not going to be. I'd rather you get positioned for the next global business cycle expansion where interest rates are going to be moving the other way. Tell us about that next cycle, and then let's talk about how to position for it. The next cycle is going to be the up phase of a new business cycle. We're concluding the current business cycle. And it's global, as most people are aware of. And we expect that the next rising trend will also be global. It's not going to be um, particularly strong, but it will be markedly better than what we've been going through for the last six months. And we're going to be going through for the next six months. This deceleration is going to turn around into acceleration. So we fully expect that in the second half of 2020, we'll be on the upside of another cycle that will carry us all the way through 2021. And that timing is what we're getting off some of the preliminary reversals from the leading indicator. Sounds like you're pretty optimistic then about things. You can call it optimism. We call it realism. I mean, things aren't good or bad, optimistic or pessimistic. We just read the trends and look at what's going on. And it's just realism is all it is. But yeah, you can call it upbeat okay. if you want. Yeah, it seems upbeat, which, uh, you know, a lot of people are predicting, you know, that the cycle is ending and uh, it's time for a recession. So we're we're hearing, you know, that kind of talk a lot. And, and that's why I mention it. Tell us about some of the indicators that you really value in terms of uh, forecasting future trends? Okay. It's not going to be as neat and bow-tied an answer as you may like because some of our best leading indicators are proprietary to ITR economics. We've developed them to be very, very good long-term leading indicators. By long-term, I mean 12 to 18 months visibility into the future. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've created them, we've honed them, we and they work exceedingly well for us. One of which we're showing a lot in our presentations is a retail sales leading indicator. It leads by 18 months. So there's no doubt in our minds that the retail sales sector is going to be seeing diminishing growth between now and the end of 2019 and probably the first quarter of 2020. That's pretty much fait accompli at this point. Mm-hmm. Look, the leading indicator is suggesting that retail sales are going to slow down to about a 2.8% growth rate at their trough, their slowest point. Now, that's enough to keep us out of recession, but it really puts us on the hairy edge of recession. It's enough that the Federal Reserve will probably have the latitude to lower interest rates one more time if they want to. I don't think that's going to rock anybody's boat one way or the other. The, the global marketplace has been advertising that is going to happen for quite some time. These leading indicators, like the ITR retail sales leading indicator, the ITR financial leading indicator, and a few others are telling us interest rates, business activity, retail sales activity, wages, all are going to be in a brand new rising trend beginning in the second half of 2020. Mm-hmm. I think if your readers want one to follow that, or your listeners rather, I want one to follow that they may not be already tuned into, I suggest the G7 leading indicator. It's put up by the OECD in Paris. Mm-hmm. We run uh, a rate of change on that, but that's a, an off one for most people and it's a, a good one another one that we find very useful and most people don't follow and it's readily available is uh, copper prices copper is the metal with a right. phd in economics so use it 
and uh, it'll, it tells you what to expect. That, that's interesting, and I, I do talk about copper a bit. That's a very interesting expression. I've never heard. Copper is the metal with a PhD in economics. Tell us more about that. I love it. Well, it's just such a ubiquitous commodity, uh, and it just happens to be a bellwether commodity that um, when the pricing is going up, you know where industrial demand is heading, uh, barring some other extraneous event. And when it's going down, it tells you where industrial demand is going on the downside. Mm -hmm. And it has been, in the 35 years that I've been doing this, one of these cycle in and cycle out indicators that I can count on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, interesting, interesting, good stuff. So interestingly, there has been a lot of pressure from the Trump administration, or specifically Trump's Twitter account, to <laughs> to see some lower interest rates, even negative interest rates. What do you think about that? I think that um, we've seen uh, presidents in the past harangue Federal Reserves for lower interest rates. Uh, this is nothing new. I've never actually, I don't recall any president ever haranguing for negative interest rates. That's, that's sort of extreme, but that's sort of par for the course. Mm -hmm. Particularly as you go into an election year, presidents like lower interest rates. They don't like higher interest right. rates. I think the Federal Reserve needs to be independent of the body politic. And I think uh, Chairman Powell has been doing a good job stating that if required, they will lower interest rates. Uh, he's just following the marketplace lead and doing a pretty good job of tuning out the president. It's not beyond most people's understanding that lower interest rates also helps a real estate investor more than your average person out there. And our president is a real estate investor, so he, right. he needs those lower interest rates for two very good reasons. Yeah, I like to say uh, that uh, Trump is our first real estate president, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. good. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Well, what else do you want people to know? I know we've got to wrap this interview up kind of in short order, but uh, maybe any, any things I haven't asked you about. I want to ask you about trade war and labor, too, before you go, but go ahead. There are a real estate-centric point that we've been making with people is you look at the demographics of the United States, and you look at the historical occupancy rating, if you will, for home ownership. Um, we're way below norms. We at ITR Economics think that the housing industry is going to be a very strong part of our economy through the end of the 2020s. That doesn't mean it won't have some ups and downs. Cycles are always going to happen. But the, the underlying trend, the secular trend, is going to be quite positive for the housing industry, both in terms of volume, in terms of builders, in terms of realtors, in terms of lumber yards. I mean, it's going to be a good part of our economy. We've taken a bit of a hit uh, for various and sundry reasons, but it's catching its breath. And I think you're going to be uh, enjoying the rise that's about to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting perspective. So talk to us a little bit about trade, if you will, and, you know, this constant uh, talk of the trade war. And I think the media has portrayed that really in a very lopsided fashion, uh, you know, not talking about the, the good that comes out of it in terms of American jobs. You know, we've seen pay increases. Now, you, you're welcome to disagree with me, but you know, I, I think there are definitely some good benefits, but all you hear are the bad things, you know, double-edged sword. Well, Jason, there's no doubt that there are winners in any uh, tariff or protectionist situation. But in terms of wage increases, they were going on before the tariffs were ever imposed. They just weren't getting a whole lot of press. 
uh, in terms of uh, jobs being created, we're actually seeing a slowdown in the rate of rise in jobs. This is one of the peculiarities of this whole trade issue. We impose tariffs at the top of a business cycle. Traditionally, you impose tariffs or other forms of protection to stimulate U.S. job, quote-unquote, creation, and to protect uh, local industries, U.S. industries, because they can't compete on the global sphere. And that was initially the, the rationale. And what had me befuddled from the very beginning is if we're trying to stimulate employment, where are we going to get the people? We don't have a supply of labor to satisfy the demand. The only reason we haven't seen more of a, a price increase in wages, which would hurt profitability, is businesses have been making uh, Herculean efforts in the form of automation and um, really obviating the utility of labor in any of their business or as many as their business processes as possible. Long run, and I'm a macroeconomist, Jason, long run tariffs, protectionism, decreased competition. Decreased competition leads to inefficiencies. Inefficiencies leads to inflation, structural imbalances within the economy. And uh, ultimately, somebody has to pay that price. And whether you're talking about the, the Jones Act uh, and shipping in the United States and what that cost means, um, sure, we created more welding jobs. We created more machinist jobs. But somebody had to pay for those, and the consumer ended up paying big time for all of that. So there are winners and there are always losers, my friend. Yeah, I agree with you. It is a, it is a very hard balance, but it, it just feels like most consumer prices, and I'm really referring to things that are imported from, of course, mainly China, are incredibly cheap. I just can't believe sometimes how inexpensive and what good quality we get to enjoy today. You know, it's it's the opposite of inflation. I mean, I remember in the 90s how much more everything costs than it does today. Everything today is so much better and so inexpensive. You know, I, I sort of wonder, do we really need prices this low? <laughs> now, that doesn't apply to everything. Food, college tuition, healthcare, completely overpriced. Assets, if you want to buy a house, very expensive. But consumer products are just cheap. You know, I, I think it might be better to have a high-paying job or a job at all, you know. Well, in terms of the cheapness of consumer products, that increases the standard of living of the consumer sure because now you can yeah. afford the phone, you can afford the TV, right. multiple TVs. Yeah. The opposite is you decrease the standard of living of the consumer. So if you're going to start making things more expensive, then their level of utility for all these consumer goods is going to be diminished because you're not going to have as many of these consumer goods because you cannot afford them anymore. Yeah. Make no mistake about it, globalization, whether you and I like it or not, is under severe negative pressure. You look at Brexit, you look at uh, Italy, Austria, China, Brazil, and the United States. Nationalism, my friend, is the new trend. Yeah, right. Not globalization. So be careful what you wish for, because nationalism is going to get you the future that you just espoused. And there will be winners and losers in, the, in that scenario, too. There always are. Yeah, no, there, there's no question about it. It's just that we, until recently, haven't seen a real pay increase for Americans in decades. 
Now, see, know, I can't agree with you there. I've got okay, the data me. that yeah. shows otherwise, Jason. I've tell got me, tell me. Yeah. government data that shows. And, and whenever I do a talk, uh, I just did one yesterday in Milwaukee. So I show them how in Wisconsin, real wages have indeed gone up after adjusting for inflation. People are making more money today than they were 10 years ago than they were 20 years ago. You know, the politicians love to throw out other numbers to prove to prove whatever points. point they want to make. Yeah, right. Right. And I, and I just deal with the fact. Man, I just look at the numbers. The numbers say real people making more money than ever before. This system of our form of capitalism isn't perfect, but gosh, it really works. And it's it works pretty good. Really yeah, well. No question about it. Yeah. I agree with you there. By the way, what time period are you talking about? Because I have heard and re I've heard so many studies. I've read so many articles showing that like 1977 was sort of the, the mark and up until just 2016, give or take, no real dollar pay increases. Now, of course, you got to segment that geographically by income. I, I get it. Uh, it's complicated, I know. But just tell us a little more about your numbers, and let's wrap it up with that. I specified my time periods, 10 years and 20 years. Mm -hmm. Going back to 77 goes back to our prior generation. We had a lot more inflation then. So you're looking at some significantly inflated wages during that period. And there's been some really good studies that say you, you don't look just at wages. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have a chapter coming out in our next book about this. You have to look at the standard of living. And right. it goes back to your earlier point, Jason. We have more things available to us. We enjoy more aspects of all these things. We have more free time. Our standard of living is so much higher today than it was in 1977 or 1987, for that matter. I don't want to go back to those times whatsoever. I don't want America to go back to those times either. Give out your website, Brian, and tell people where they can find your book, too. Uh, you can find the book on the website, Prosperity in the Age of Decline, and the website is itreconomics.com, and you'll find us there. Yeah, good stuff. One last question before you go. Uh, just interesting, Prosperity in the Age of Decline you sound very optimistic in this interview, and now I know you're say, just realistic, but you know you said some very positive things. Is the decline something that's out further in the future, or is it a catchy title, or just explain that title a little bit if you would? Well, it's twofold. Uh, people think we are in some sort of age of decline now. America's losing its prowess. Uh, the Chinese are going to overtake us. We're not as good as we used to be. The system is broken. Capitalism isn't working. All that stuff is negativity that is out there. But so we're, we're countering that. There's a lot of prosperity for those who want to take control of their own financial and economic future. There's no lack of prosperity. We are concerned about a future date that isn't in the next eight years, further out than that, where our government's free spending ways, and my friend, I'm sure you've been looking at how fast the national debt has been increasing here in the United States. I'm sure you're aware of how fast China is just subsidizing their growth growth with a house of cards called debt. Yeah. The world is increasingly awash in it, and primarily led by China and then the United States and then Japan. That can't go on forever. There are people out there that want you to think that it can go on forever, hence 
the new uh, monetary theory, modern monetary theory. MMT, yeah, right, right. Uh, It's it's just a joke, but it's part of how we're going to rationalize our lack of fiscal responsibility. That gets you into a whole lot of trouble eventually. Yeah, well, I agree with you about MMT. All right, Brian, thanks for joining us, and uh, happy investing. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, Jason. I appreciate it. Look forward to the next time. Always good talking to you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own, and if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.